Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Welcome back to Tip Today, 83 311 It's time for our weekly uh, global politics segment uh, now and uh, politics and economics student uh, Thomas Conway joins me. Thomas, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. And always good to see you. Um, breaking news, I suppose, Mr Biden will be in Ukraine today. What's, what's happening there? Yeah, BBC Alert just came up on my phone there. He's actually made a surprise visit to Kiev. So he's due, President Biden, due to make a three-day trip to Ukraine or to... Poland over the next couple of days but he's dropped by Kiev to meet Vladimir Zelensky in the meantime more pledges of uh, of weaponry and ammunition and support for Ukraine uh, nothing nothing too drastic but it is mm. I suppose it, it is a, a show of uh, solidarity I guess as we approach the, the one year invasion right. one year anniversary any news about the aeroplanes the fighter jets and stuff uh... he has so far I think stalled on that commitment yeah. uh, or he is certainly he's kept quiet I think the US is very conscious of what might be perceived as a radical escalation in terms of what support specifically it gives to Ukraine. So as I said, he has pledged more support, but it's kind of more the same from what I've been reading, from what I can gauge. Interesting. The French are holding back on the fighter jets as well. French are holding back. I mean, you had over the weekend the Munich Security Conference, which is another one of these kind of showpiece global political events. You had Macron saying that Russia needs to be defeated but not crushed, which I thought was a very interesting quote from him. Uh, in other words, I suppose, assuaging uh, the concerns that, you know, Vladimir Putin would be completely crushed and may resort to something drastic like like nuclear weapons. Macron has kind of towed that line. He's been treading very carefully on that patch. Yeah, interesting. Um, you and I off air, we've been talking about the, the Kurds and the Kurdish population uh, over the last few weeks. And I asked you to do something uh, on it. I suppose it's even more topical now with what's happening in uh, Turkey and Syria following the earthquake. Yeah, I suppose a devastating earthquake, obviously, southern Turkey, northern Syria. But it is a region which is home to, to the Kurds. And mm. the Kurds are a group which... I suppose, almost disproportionately influenced geopolitics, both in the Middle East and and further afield. I really enjoyed researching this piece, I have to say, because even I, I just didn't realise the extent of the influence which they have over mm. the region. It's very interesting. Essentially, the Kurds are a, an ethnic minority, which are between 25 and 35 million Kurds, they inhabit a mountainous region straddling the borders of Turkey, Iraq, Syria, Iran and Armenia. So broadly speaking, that's the, the earthquake zone, the region which which was struck. They're the mm. fourth largest group in the Middle East, but they've never obtained a permanent nation state. So they've never had a country of their own. They're an indigenous people. Why is that? Is that the nomadic so, aspect to what they do? In the wake of in the wake of the First World War, the Treaty of Sevres made provision for a, a Kurdish state. It was to be called Kurdistan. Mm. It was then revised in a further treaty, and they were left effectively stateless. So, almost thrown out to an extent by the uh, by the international community, you could see why why they might feel very aggrieved by it. And mm. since that time. They have remained stateless. Now, they've pushed for Kurdish independence, and that, I think, is the ultimate goal. But it still seems to be 
a far away prospect right. at but, the moment. But independents were because they're spread over so many countries. They are. And and this is the thing about, you know, you have Kurdish political parties. You can get lost in, I think, the alphabet soup. You have the PK, PKK, which effectively are the Kurdish political party in Turkey, the YPD, which are the Kurdish political party in Syria, yes. and so on and so forth. So you can get lost in kind of a yeah. an alphabet soup of different names. Well, but when the maps were redrawn in that area, was that really what displaced them, so to speak? Essentially, essentially. Yeah. There was a realignment in yes. terms of, after both world wars, I suppose, a realignment of the different the different countries, and obviously following the breakup of the Soviet Union. You had a lot of, a lot of new borders, a lot of contentious new borders drawn. But the Kurds were never, I'm not mm. sure, were, were never deemed uh, fit enough to have a state of their own. I'm not sure exactly the regions. And yet they 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 are almost like a, a, a nation state. They're their own ethnic. They have their own mm. ethnic identity. They played a, fr- a frontal role in the war against Islamic State mm. in the Middle East, and it really is interesting. Mm. I mean, in in 2013, the Islamic State turned its sights on on Kurdish enclaves that bordered territory under its control in northern Syria. It launched repeated attacks on them, but the attacks were repulsed or resisted by the Kurds. So they have shown themselves to be. Yeah. An incredible fighting force and in what, that region. What is their religious uh, ethos? So the majority of them are Sunni Muslim, but they're not all of the same of the same religion. There are actually a variety of different creeds which they worship. Now the majority are Sunni Muslim. They also speak a variety of different languages, and that's I suppose owing to the fact that they are scattered across a, a number of different countries. As I said, there Syria, uh, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Armenia. So you have them living little enclaves of curves, living in living in different regions. Turkey has the largest majority. So 15 to 20% of the Turkish population are Kurds and yet they are seen or perceived mm. as a threat. To, and why, why is that? Well, to a certain extent, you can blame it on Recep Tayyip Erdogan. I know he's come in for criticism yeah. with the earthquake, but he has launched kind of repeated attacks, political attacks on the Kurdish minority in the country. He himself, I suppose, is an Islamic nationalist, a nationalist prime minister, uh, very, um, you know, determined to support Turkish independence and determined not to let the Kurds have a state of their own. He's currently in a, in a, I suppose, a dispute with Sweden over a number of Kurdish settlers there, whether they should be extradited back to Turkey. He perceives them as terrorists and he has effectively branded the Kurds as a terrorist group. So there is that Yes. Tension that that tension exists, and it exists not only in Turkey. It exists in in the lights of Iraq as well. Uh, Fifteen to twenty percent of Iraq's population also Kurdish. Around seven percent, seven to ten percent of the population of Syria Kurdish as well. So you know, significant mi- minorities in the various countries. Yeah, it's very interesting for many of us. They might have come to our notice first of all with uh, Saddam Hussein in in Iraq, and I mean he he really you know was so precisely grateful and, uh, to them. You know, yeah, precisely. And I suppose the Kurds have you know they have shown themselves to be an incredible fighting force, mm-hmm. an incredibly resolute and determined fighting force that has been illustrated in their their war against their campaign against Islamic State, but also with the lights of. Saddam Hussein and what I found fascinating is the fact that they have retained their their spirit of independence they Mm. haven't been subsumed into the various countries of the Middle East part of the population despite not having a state of their own they're still a, a very much a people of of their right. own their are own ethnic still, status are there still elements of them that are nomadic oh yeah 
Big, big time, big right. time. And there there are elements of them which I suppose, which migrate from place to place, you okay. know. They might have kind of a permanent settled residence in, in a certain region, uh, but certainly they move between move between Kurdish heartlands. Now, the, the big question which everybody will be asking is, is there any prospect that they will eventually get their own state at Kurdistan, which is the name yes. given to the various regions? From what I've read, from what I've analysed, it seems a, a faraway prospect at this stage. It may come in time, but make, make right. no mistake, it will have to be and, a different and president if it, in Turkey. Just finally, before we move on, if it were to happen, where would it be? Well, I think the fact that the majority, that there's 15 to 20% of the Turkish population are Kurdish, it would probably be in that region in southern Turkey, northern Syria, that kind of earthquake region. They call it Anatolia, right. which is the historical name for the region. I think it's probably going to be around there as opposed to regions in Iraq or Iran. Right, but but what countries would agree to rewriting? Well, exactly. I'll, you know, the diplomatic yeah. and, and political repercussions of that would be it's significant. Huge, so, yeah. absolutely huge. All right, a sparkle of democracy in Southeast Asia, Thomas? Yeah, this is quite a good news story by, by all accounts. It's, it's the story of a resurgence in democracy, basically, in Southeast Asia. And it kind of... It feeds into the broader geopolitical dynamic between the US and China. So at the moment, we have this clash of superpowers, clash of giants between America, on the one hand, which is a model of democracy, and China, which has its own authoritarian system. And in recent years, I mean, democracy, we know, hasn't necessarily flourished in the West. Mm. There have been repeated attacks on it by Russia and other nefarious actors. China, on the other hand, uh, has flourished with its own model of authoritarianism. It has managed to marry economic reform and kind of this repressive political system. Many have been surprised at that. And many countries across Asia would have looked at China and, and seen how their model has worked and said, well, look, maybe we can we can emulate them. So in recent years, we've had, you know, countries like the Philippines, their former president, Rodrigo Duterte, he kind of eroded the democratic architecture there. Likewise, the Cambodian leader, Hun Sen, even Narendra Modi in India has, has done his best to chip away at the democratic structure of that country. But we're now witnessing kind of chinks of light, chinks of democratic light mm. emerging across. And I'll just, I'll just give you a couple, of, a couple of examples. In the Philippines, we now have Ferdinand Bongbong Marcus. Now, a lot of people would have been worried when he came to power yeah that he would replicate, I suppose, the leadership style, the leadership uh, of his father, who was kind of a, a notorious autocrat. He hasn't. He's been surprisingly uh, reasonable in his first couple of months in office, and he's proven himself to be quite a deft administrator. You know, he has upheld the democratic uh, principles of, hmm. of the country. Sri Lanka is another place. Last July, we spoke about this in the programme, the Rajapaksa family, led by Gotabaya Rajapaksa, the former president, fled the country. He was kind of a notorious autocrat in his own right. And since then, Guta, uh, Sri Lanka has kind of been making this economic and political recovery. So, you know, prospect mm. of democracy there, not far off. Furthermore, power alternated hands last December in Fiji. Uh, swift mm. transition of power there. A number of months before that, Malaysia had also undergone... But but not to pour cold water on, on uh, this. Um, the, we've seen this before, haven't we, with the third wave? You know, we've and, seen and this look before. look at what that came to. Yeah, and, and the third wave, just for people who aren't familiar, was kind of this golden advance of democracy yeah. in the 1980s. You had dictatorships falling 
uh, along with the Soviet Union, I suppose, and all these different democracies emerging. But in recent years, they they have been kind of uh, pedal back, mm. pedal backwards, reversed to a certain extent. Even in Europe, we see with countries like Poland and Hungary, which are suffering the effects, I suppose, yes. of a democratic decline or a democratic deficit. So really right. interesting stuff. And that would be the worry for a lot of Southeast Asian countries. But it's worth, it's worth, and of course, actually, it, it's worth stating that some parts of Asia haven't realised or haven't seen democracy at all. They haven't been touched. And I'm talking about China, Laos, Vietnam. And then you have your own special case in North Korea, yes. which is, you know, a completely different model in itself. Now, so, I mean, like there are, there are positives and negatives of looking at this story. The, the positive is that authoritarianism, I suppose, at the moment is on the wane. It is declining. And there seems to be chinks of democratic light emerging across Asia. Now, whether that will sustain, uh, it's hard mm. to know. But a lot of it is due to the fact that authoritarianism hasn't been delivering. People have looked to Xi Jinping and he, they've looked at his mm. blunders managing the economy and things like that. Yes. And they've seen that he hasn't and been getting the desired much, results. How much of the thumbs has been driven by young people? And I suppose I'm thinking of uh, Iran here with the students who precisely, are very, very active. Precisely. And, and to, to a slightly lesser extent, Myanmar. Yes. It's, almost, it's exactly the second anniversary of the military coup in Myanmar, which was obviously a very negative event. They're still under military dictatorship. But there has been a fight back, a resurgence. There's now kind of a, an alternative cross-party government there. And that, the support for that is being led by young people. We see a similar scenario unfolding in Iran. So it's like this next generation of people who, who I think are determined to invest themselves in democracy and to make democracy work. Now, whether their, their enthusiasm will, will sustain remains to be seen, but at least there is hope. Uh, can we just briefly have a look at what's happening in uh, Peru if we go to South America now? And again, mass protest. There's civil unrest, to say the very least. Yeah, there might be chinks of democracy emerging in, yeah. in Asia, but it's kind of a different story in South America at the moment. So Peru, we, we don't know much about the country, I think it's fair to say. Most Irish people, it's home to almost 38 million, thousand, or 38 million people, so a sizable population there. It rarely enters the headlines, but in recent weeks, a very hostile political situation has emerged. The nation is effectively being gripped by mass protest. It was triggered last December, December 7th, by the ousting of the now former president, Pedro Castillo. Castillo had himself, uh, the debts, the debt toll actually is, I have 48 people down here, but it has risen in in the week since. The protest began after yeah, Congress removed Pedro, President Pedro Castillo. He was arrested and is now being held in pre-trial detention. But a lot of his supporters in the south of the country are determined to, to have him back in power. Essentially, Fran, this was about Castillo launching kind of his own self-coup, if you know what I mean. Uh, he tried to, mm. tried to manipulate Parliament in such a way as to favour himself... Uh, to favour the policies he wanted to put through. But he was in danger of impeachment as well, was he? He not? was in danger of impeachment. So, yeah. you know, he is he's not necessarily... He could be perceived just as well as the bad actor in this. Yeah. Now, the current president, Dina Buluarte, uh, she took over as Peru's sixth president in five years following Castillo's departure. She has said herself that her position isn't tenable and the unrest, I suppose, is is illustrating that election, an election is the key to this scenario. An election... If right. a solution is to be found, it will come in the form of an election.
Right, but uh, there's corruption all, all over government. There's corruption there, yeah. all over, and we're also suffering, Peru is also suffering the legacy of kind of a a bloody armed conflict, a two-decade armed conflict between guerrillas in the south of the country. An estimated 69 people were killed in that. So, you know, that is very much echoes of that still there, uh, still there in the country. Now, the election is due to be held in April 2024. Really and truly, it will need to happen sooner if mm-hmm. a solution is to be found. We only have about a minute and a half left, but what should we be looking out for uh, over the coming week or so, uh, Thomas? What's, what's Well, happening? I mentioned the Munich Security Conference, and I suppose this happened over the weekend, mm-hmm. but it's still worth mentioning anyway. Various world leaders converging on the Bavarian capital, Munich, uh, to give kind of showpiece speeches. You had Kamala Harris saying that Russia had committed crimes against humanity. You, I mentioned Macron earlier on. Rishi Sunak was there. He's been a bit preoccupied with the Northern Ireland Protocol, but he still made his way to Munich and you had Chancellor Olaf Scholz. So that was, an ex- that was a big international event. Mm. But like all these international events, it's not necessarily the public pronouncements or the public statements that are most important. Right. It's the behind-the-scenes conversations. So, and you and know, that's where peace in Ukraine might emerge from, is it those precisely, smoky it back is rooms? Precisely, it is smoky back rooms, yeah. exactly, with... with diplomats and world leaders talking in conversations behind the scenes. If peace is ever to emerge, it will emerge in those Very good. Can we just mention before we go about uh, Sturgeon calling it a day? Surprise for an awful lot of people. Surprise for an awful lot of people. Yeah, I was surprised myself. So, you know, I was looking at her her kind of profile. Uh, We we might take a look at the politics of Scotland in a further show when the leadership battle hots up. Very interesting. And no doubt it will. But I mean, she's been a member of Holyrood the Scottish Parliament since 1999. She took over as First Minister from Alex Salmond in 2014 following the unsuccessful independence referendum. But she has been a fierce advocate of Scottish independence. You mentioned there with your your, uh, previous guest the fact that she felt she wasn't the woman to kind of heal that divide Mm. uh, between Scottish nationalists and Unionists yes. within within and that Scotland. appeared to be behind. That appeared to be behind the decision, from what I could gauge. Anyway, yeah. I mean, she now she must be said she led the SNP to a number of election victories, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a number of significant coups. They're the largest Scottish party in the Parliament of Westminster. She's had quite a successful political career, but the next general election will effectively be a de facto referendum on Scottish independence and she obviously feels she's not the woman to be able to bridge or heal that divide in Scotland at this present moment. Right, and we're just about out of time but you were anxious to mention that uh, Norway warning of growing importance of Russian nuclear deterrent in Yeah, the exactly. A couple, well, of, yeah. A, couple of, uh, a couple of Russian ships now capable of carrying tactical nuclear weapons. It's a further warning sign to the West, really. Oh, Thomas, it's always a pleasure. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks, Frank. Great to chat to you as always. Uh, news and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.